This is God's Word. Please take heed how you hear. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Amen. And amen. This is the Word of God. May God add His blessing to its reading and preaching this evening. Well, I wonder, are you confident that God loves you? Are you assured of God's fatherly favor? Many Christians are not, and it's important. Uh, The Puritans would say that faith will make you walk to heaven, but assurance will make you run being confident of God's love. And there are many times in our lives when we can doubt um, God's love, when we lose assurance. If you turn in the back of your um, hymn book a second to the Westminster Confession of Faith, let's see here. Chapter 18, page 858. The chapter in Assurance of Grace and Salvation, a wonderful chapter, full, replete of pastoral wisdom. But look at paragraph 4. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation and assurance, therefore, of God's love, diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of His countenance, and suffering even such as fear Him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit this assurance may in due time be revived, and by which in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. So, the, the writers there are saying that Christians are never left in a position of utter despair, but it can feel pretty bleak at times. We can feel very uncertain of our salvation and therefore very uncertain of the fact that God loves us, and we can be frightened of God's wrath against us, even a true Christian. It does not so belong to the essence of faith, our Father said um, in paragraph 3, that 
excuse me, um, there's a number of sayings in Calvin Institutes where he speaks of faith, uh, assurances of the essence of faith, and that led a lot of people to struggle because what it seemed to be that Calvin was saying was that if you have faith, you will have assurance. And that's blatantly not the case, and Calvin elsewhere in his writings um, makes it clear that he believes that. But there's one or two places where he'll make that statement, faith is of the essence of faith. And our, our Westminster divines here, this infallible assurance of faith does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. This sense of assurance can wax and wane. Do you struggle with assurance? Are you struggling with assurance this evening? I'd be very surprised if there weren't many in our room this evening who entertained at least a little bit of doubt that they had the fatherly favor of God. And there are times in the Christian life when it can feel that way. And the psalmist tonight finds himself in just such a moment. Look at verse 41. Let your steadfast love, your chesed love, come to me. If he wants the love of God to come to him, he obviously doesn't feel as if it's right close to him at the moment. He feels some degree of separation from it. And worse, he can't pull himself up. He's like a man, maybe on his tenth pull-up, um, when you just, can't, you just can't do one more and you're hanging there by the bar, but you just can't pull one more chin up to the, your, to the bar. You're, just, you're hanging there. and He can't pull himself up to God's love what sometimes we can do, we can argue ourselves towards God's love, but here the psalmist feels helpless to get there. It's almost as if he's saying, I can't get there from here. I can't. I'm heading back to Northern Ireland tomorrow to be with my mother, who's deathly sick, and I can't drive there. I can't get in a car and drive across the Atlantic Ocean. It'll take a rather long time, of course, but you just can't do it. You've got to get on a plane. And the psalmist can't get himself to God's love. He can't get there as it were, from here. And that would be bad enough, but he's also surrounded by men who are taunting him. Verse 42, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me. Samus is being taunted, maybe like David in... in um, Psalm 3, you remember, Absalom is coming into Jerusalem, a terrible moment in David's life, the fulfillment of all God's threatenings to David through the prophet Nathan. He knows he's messed it up, and he knows that God's um, retributive disciplinary vengeance is coming upon him, not in a damnable sense, but in a, a sense of God's wrath. His anger is kindled against David, and David's fleeing Jerusalem under a cloud of discipline, and he says, many are rising up against me. Lord, how many are my foes? Um, many are against me. Again, many, many, many. Three times in that first verse, I think, he says, many are against me. Many are my adversaries. And and then he says, many are saying to my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. And one of those, of course, um, was standing at the, the brook Kidron, cursing him as he left, one of Saul's family line. And uh, David was, Shimei was cursing him. 
And David was, one of David's mighty men said, shall I go across and lop off his head? I won't take two strikes. And David said, no, let him alone. The Lord has let him curse me. And as those words rang in David's ears, there is no deliverance from in God. You, I imagine, as I've said before, David felt there was more than little truth in those things. Is there salvation for me in God? And of course, there was. And David's next word is, verse is, is a verse of titanic, victorious faith. But you, Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. Amazing faith amidst all of that of that. Um, Reveal judgment, David pulls himself above the cloud into the sunshine, above even the darkest cloud, and he sees the blue sky of God's love and God's faith and God's mercy toward him. But sometimes Christians can't do that. Sometimes, sometimes we can't pull ourselves up into God's love by faith. And sometimes we need God to help us do that. Let your steadfast love Come to me, O Yahweh. The word steadfast love there is chesed, the, the, the enduring, unchanging, stubborn commitment of God to do good to you, to be kind to you, no matter how long it takes, no matter what it costs him, and no matter what you deserve. That's the idea behind chesed love. And it's a love that will be fulfilled, of course, at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, it's synonymous with salvation. When you have this love of God, you have the salvation of God. In the parallelism of the psalm, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation. And he's using your salvation there as kind of um, like, a like a musician on the piano um, playing the same tune in a different way as Caleb was earlier this evening so beautifully playing some of those David Nauvoo uh, renditions of the hymns and, and playing them just a different way. Uh, but we recognize the tune, and likewise, David's playing in the second half of verse 41, the same melody, but just a different chord structure. He's speaking, he takes steadfast love out and uses the word salvation almost as if it's the same thing, that your steadfast love come to me. By this I mean your salvation, because if I have the one, I have the other. I have the heart of God, I have the saving hand of God. David feels this, he needs this, and he pleads for it from the promise of God, according to your promise. For I trust in your word, he says. It's a, it's a, there's an argument strong enough to storm the battlements of heaven, to break through the heavens when they're like brass, and to reach into the very inner sanctum of God himself. Father, you've promised. There's grace all over this verse. The steadfast love of God is never deserved, always freely given, but it's also freely promised. And David lays hold of both with the left and right hand of faith and says, O oh God, I can't get there from here, but let your love come to me. Let your salvation come to me, O oh God, because you've promised, because you've promised. And there's a beautiful structure to the psalm thus far as David longing for the love of God to come to him. And like Mateer says, the preceding, the preceding sections have wrestled with the problem of living the pure life that's in, in bait, the first one, the second part, sorry. In an alien world, Gimel, a world full of pressure, Dalit, and with a divided heart, previous one, Hey, you need this heart to be united. 
And under such pressure, one ingredient is important above all others, the Lord's promised unfailing love and salvation, the love which knows, which cares, which provides, the love that never fails, and the salvation that steps in to deliver at every moment of need. That's what David needs. He feels far away from God's love. And he says, Lord, I can't get there from here, but I want your love to come to me according to your word, that you will step in and save me at every point of need. And that should encourage you this evening. If you're here this evening and you find yourself doubting the love of God, as I know many of you do, maybe you're saying, I just don't feel it. Well, you've a friend in the psalmist. Many times the psalmist just didn't feel it. But that didn't stop him knowing it. It didn't stop him reaching onto it and laying hold of it like Baxter with a tug toy. Once, you get, once he gets a grip, he just won't let go of the thing. It's, it's impossible to play fetch with him, but you can play fetch with him once but never twice. He will never drop the ball. And the psalmist has got a hold of God, not in his feelings, but by faith in the promises because he wants to know God's love. Faith will make him walk, but assurance of God's love will make him run. Now, that's the theme of the psalm, this, this part of the psalm, God's steadfast love for us. And the psalm ends with our love for God, which is the echo of the, of the other, of course. God loves us, and the echo of that love is our love for God at the end of the psalm. Why is it so important that we have a feeling, a sense of God's love coming, getting us, wrapping us up. And there are four reasons, not three this evening, why it's important to have an assurance of God's love. (coughs) And the assurance of God's love, the reason, first of all, is it's the foundation of true Christian witness, verse 41 to 43. And it's also the foundation of true Christian liberty, verse 44 and 45. It's also the, the foundation of true Christian boldness, verse 46, and it's also the foundation of true Christian joy, verse 47 and 48. Assurance of God's love, then, first of all, is the foundation of true Christian witness, 41 to 43. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Why? Verse 42, then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. Do you ever find it hard to witness for Jesus? I do. You ever find yourself opening your mouth sometimes, and it's as if God has sucked all of the Scripture you know out of your mouth, and you have nothing to say. I remember talking to um, Pastor Al Martin, who was a dear mentor of mine uh, 20 years ago when I was in Yeti City, and he was, a, he was a Reformed Baptist preacher, one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard. If you want to hear him, go to Sermon Audio and put in, What's Wrong with Preaching Today? And he's got a Titanic sermon that he gave in his 40s when he was at the Banner of Truth conference one year. It's an incredible sermon. But um, what's wrong with preaching today? Blow your socks off. Anyway, sorry, he blew my socks off. But um, Pastor Martin shared with me one time, he was, he was 
asked to go and uh, share the gospel with a, um, a family member of one of his congregation who was, uh, who was dying and was, who was incredibly hostile to the Christian faith. And he went into the, the room, and if you know Pastor Martin, he's anything, he, he, he doesn't lack boldness, right? He's a thundering, like John the Baptist type figure, um, fears um, the face of no man. And he went into that office, and he said it was into that hospital room, and he said it was as if I, I went from being a lion to a lamb. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't get to the gospel. I was trying to talk to this man. He was dying. And Every time I tried to get to the gospel without being awkward, the guy would, would, would kind of change tack like a slippery fish. You can't get your hand on it. And he said, I just couldn't get there. I just couldn't get to the gospel. And it never happened before, but it was as if God himself had shut up his mouth. And as he left, that was his assumption. I went praying. I wanted to share the gospel, but I could just never get to it. And it, just, it was almost as if there was a, a curtain between me and the man, and it just, just couldn't get there. And uh, the psalmist is aware of that same situation, uh, someone taunting him, mocking him for his confidence in God. You know, if, if you have an unbelieving family, as I know many of you do, I'm sure you've felt that. People mock you. You're so self-righteous. You're so haughty-taughty. You think you're better than everybody else. And of course, you don't. They think you're assured of going to heaven because you're confident in yourself. How arrogant of you. But of course, you're not. You're sure you're going to heaven because of your confidence in Jesus. Very different. They can't see that, though. And they mock you. They make fun of you. They belittle you. You think, oh, you're silly. Um, even Jesus felt that. He was never welcome in his hometown. His brothers mocked him. You remember, are you going to go up to Jerusalem to the feast, they said in John's gospel? Go up and show yourself to everybody, they said. They mocked him. And it's very, very painful, and the psalmist feels a sense of that taunting and the worry that I won't have an answer. They'll make fun of me, they'll mock me, and I won't have the words to say. And I'm scared of that, Lord. I, I, don't, want to look, I don't want to look stupid because I don't want to make you look stupid. And he realizes the answer is not fine within himself. The answer is looking up to God by prayer and saying, Lord, let your steadfast love come to me. Let me be assured of your love, and then I'll not fear the face of men. Like Knox, when he, lied, when he was being buried, one of the Scottish nobles who had no love for Knox said, here lies a man who feared the face of no man. And the reason Knox feared the face of no man, of course, was because he did fear the face of God. When you have a sense of God's love, and the smile of God upon your soul. You have no fear of the frown of men. So the psalmist says, Lord, don't take your word out of my mouth. Fill my mouth with your word. With the words of my mouth, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And he brings everything back to faith in the promise. Why should you not do this for me? There's always, when, when God is distant from the soul, there's always some fear, some sense that I've sinned away God's presence. And that's always a half-truth, if not a whole truth. There's always some sin we're committing all the time, right? And so the devil will come, and he'll always play that card. You're sinning. That's why God's hidden his face from you. And so there's the fear that if God's hiding his face from me, he may remove from me the power of solid and true witness. And the place you go is not, Lord, I'm not as bad as you think I am. No, that's stupid. You wouldn't go there. 
No, for my hope is in your rules. I'm trusting you, your judgments, your sovereign rule, not so much the nitty-gritty rules of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a tyrant, but the, the rule of a Lord who does according to His will in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. He's confident of God's providence, His overarching gubernatorial rule and reign of the cosmos. So, assurance of God's love is the foundation of Christian witness. It's very, very difficult to um, share your faith if you aren't conscious that you have the Father's heart. But I will say this to young people, there are a few things that give me more assurance of the Father's heart than sharing my faith. When I, when I go out as a medical student into the Christian Union or the Students' Union at Queen's University of Belfast, and we'd go on Thursday night and had a, a ministry called Talk Shop where we'd give out coffee and cookies to students who were pretty well oiled coming out of the, of the disco. Uh, we'd share the gospel with them. It was a great training ground um, those nights. But sharing Christ with people and seeing the darkness in their life is a tremendous way to see the light in your own life. There's a difference that they think differently, they speak differently, they act differently, they hope differently, they live differently, and not in a self-righteous way, but you talk to them and you realize we belong to different spiritual families. It's a tremendous pathway to growing an assurance of God's love that you know God and that God has done a work in your heart because He's changed you deep within. So, assurance of God's love is the foundation of true Christian witness. Secondly, the assurance of God's love is the foundation of true Christian liberty. Verse 44, I will keep your law continually forever and ever, your Torah, your fatherly instruction. And I shall walk in a broad, a wide place for I have sought your precepts. Now, precepts, the word precept in, in Hebrew is the idea of the nitty-gritty details of obedience. And there's a paradox here, isn't there? Because in one sense, the psalmist is describing a lifestyle that couldn't be more hemmed in. And yet, his experience on that narrow little path couldn't be more broad. He feels, he doesn't feel suffocated any more than a train, a locomotive feels suffocated by the, the railway tracks. Do you say track or line? We say line in the UK, I think, and you say tracks, but I forget who says what. But if it's a track or line, those metal things the train runs on, the train doesn't feel hemmed in or suffocated because those tracks are necessary for the train's energy, its momentum to have um, life-giving direction. And so the train is in one sense trapped, but if the train ever becomes free of those, of those lines, it's no longer um, an engine for life and liberty and getting to the desired destination. Derailed, it becomes a force for destruction, not life. So the psalmist feels He's committed to obey God, to do what God says, simply because it's God who says it. And yet he feels he's in a broad place, a beautiful wide meadow. 
And the I will here is connected back to verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me. Verse 42, then I shall have an answer. But also verse 44, then I will keep your law continually. Every verse of this, this, this section begins with the word and or, or then in the Hebrew, which isn't always seen in the English. Then I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. And so, David here is connecting assurance of God's love coming to him and him committed to obey the nitty-gritties of God's law and not feeling suffocated by it. Why? Because when a child is obeying his father, there's nowhere else he'd rather be. When, you, when there's an assurance of love, right, the law is not a, for, a force of bondage. It becomes a force of liberty. And if the law is a, is a, is a if, the experience, if your experience of the law is a rule of bondage that crushes you, oh, I can't, can't bear this, that's, that's a sign that you're not experiencing the love behind the law. And so your, your obedience is, is kind of motivated by a conditional God who expects you to measure up some before you'll get my favor and my smile. And so you're always trying to, to obey the law to earn the smile of God which is a, a pathway to bondage, rather than obeying the law because you have the smile of God, which is the life of a child. It couldn't be more difficult, different. And, and one of the signs that the law has become a force of bondage in your own soul is it's kind of resentful. You know, you kind of you feel um, crushed by it. And what ends up happening is you tend to look around and take perverse pleasure in pointing out other individuals who aren't living quite as well as you are. You become nasty. It's like sometimes in a family where there's chronic illness, like Alzheimer's disease, one of the siblings feels they're doing all of the work and they can become tremendously bitter toward the other family, family members because they're doing all the work and they're not, they're not lifting a finger to help. At least that's their, that's their assessment. And they can cause tremendous strife in the family. And likewise in the Christian church, when you're slaving, trying to obey God's commandments, trying to be, keep the Sabbath and do everything perfectly and all these things, and, and, and it's crushing you, it's killing you. And you see Sally Ann over there not, not you know, living a quite joyful, happy life, not being as nearly nitpicky as you are. Oh, how dare she be so happy? She should feel much more miserable, kind of is the spirit. Um, legalism is the, is, the, is the paranoia that someone somewhere might actually be enjoying serving God because they know He loves them. And that's, you know, if you, go, if you turn quickly, I don't want to steal the thunder from next week, but if you turn quickly to Romans we need to quickly move on, but if you turn quickly to Romans um, 14, <coughs> in this great chapter of Christian liberty, right now, there's a lot of complexity here, and I don't have time to really, I'm going to walk into a minefield. But what I want you to see here is the focus of the Christian life is not judging others but living for God yourself. And in the church at Rome, there were Jews and there were Gentiles, and the Jews were all kicked out in AD 49. And they came back to the church in Rome in AD 49 after, after a few years when the decree of Claudius had been lifted. 
the Gentiles had turned their church into a wasn't pleasant. It was like there was low country boils. They were sucking the heads of crawfish. They had no idea about the festivals, Passover, um, probably the Sabbath and the Lord's Day, that these Gentiles were maybe untaught in these things. And the Jews were quite angry that the Gentiles were not more, well, legalistically committed to God. And so Romans 14 is Paul's answer. And um, it's incredible. And he speaks, um, let's just read it together. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let the one who let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. You see, there's a, that's a beautiful picture, because if you have this picture, there's, some people are vegetarians. And there's no law in the Bible about that, of course. God freely commands us to eat meat. And there's probably some aspect of the Jewish food laws here on hyperdrive, but certain people in the church in Rome are only eating vegetables, and others are eating meat. And the ones who are um, eating meat feel a little bit condemned by those who um, are only eating vegetables. Even though their conscience is quite happy that God says meat's fine, you feel a bit condemned. Like some of you may not shop on the Lord's Day. You may say, I never shop on the Lord's Day, ever, for whatever reason. I'll starve first. My guests will starve first on Sunday meal. We'll eat cardboard packaged from the Amazon boxes before I'll ever go and shop for food on Sunday, and that's your conviction. And others of you have different gradations of how necessarily empty, how needy do you have to be before you will shop. And you've got different levels of necessity before which you will go out and, and um, cause others to work by shopping on Sunday, right? And there's different convictions on that. And the Bible is not clear about where, where do those convictions come? What is necessity and what is not necessity? And the, the Christian mindset is nine times out of ten, we think, I can see it very clearly, and the way I see the law is the way you should see the law, and if you don't, you're a sinner. And it's jolly hard for me to keep my law. It's very, very heavy, and, and you shouldn't be through it. I mean, how dare you be doing that on Sunday? You watched the World Cup this afternoon, you wicked person. I wanted to, but I didn't. And there's kind of that kind of tension going on in the church and room. And Paul says, God has welcomed both these brothers. Both these tr- brothers have trusted in Jesus. And in their mind, the one who's abstaining is doing so because he fears God, and the one who's eating meat is doing so because he fears God. They're not defiling their conscience. They're living up to the light they have and the understanding of God's Word. And God has welcomed them. So how dare you reject them, Paul says. That's the posture, living before a welcoming God. That's the Christian life. Assurance of God's smile is love. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. When you judge other people for their convictions and what they do and don't do, what they eat and don't eat, what you're really saying is they are your servant, and they should do things your way. And Paul says, no, no, 
to his own mastery stands or falls. One person, and this is incredible, I have to, now, bear with me, I'm going to speak as one and see, and if I could go back to Paul in Romans, I'd say, Paul, stop a second. I know you're inspired by the Holy Spirit. Can I, can I just give you some editorial advice? Um, years to come, people are going to fight about, is he speaking about the Sabbath day, the Saturday Sabbath, or is he, are you also speaking about the Lord's day? Please be clear, okay? Because there's a bunch of people in America, especially, who are going to go crazy and deny the fourth commandment over what you're about to say. Um, and yet, Paul didn't need my editorial advice. There's a, there's a deliberate obtuseness here. And from this passage, it's very, very difficult to be 100% clear as to what exactly Paul is saying. But what he does say is very clear. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And, and I, I can't read that any of that. That could just be speaking about Jewish feast days, but Paul doesn't say just Jewish feast days. All days alike. I, have to, I do think, to some extent here, Paul is, is, is talking about honest disagreement in the church about even the Lord's Day, what should be done and what shouldn't be done on the Lord's Day. He's not denying the fourth commandment. It's a serious commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, but he's, he recognizes in a fallen world there'll be different opinions about what we should and should not do. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It's not about, and this is, where most, this is where some of you go wrong. Some of you think Christian liberty is a case of, I will do what I jolly well want to do. That's not Christian liberty. Christian liberty is, I will do what the Lord jolly well wants me to do by His grace. And I'll not come into the bondage of men. I'm going to live for the smile of God. Christian liberty is not freedom to do your own thing. Christian liberty is to do what you really believe is God's will, and not to be brought into bondage by the opinions of men. For God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. This is a, a relationship of love, honoring God, thanking God. For none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. We're not being selfish here. We're living for God, Paul says. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. This is a life of assurance. I belong to God. I have his heart. He loves me. For to this end, Christ died and lived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul saying these matters, eating and drinking meat, you might think these silly vegetarians, you know, Paul says, even these silly things are not silly when they're done in good conscience to God. And God will judge us by how we've lived before our consciences. I'll not judge you. You'll not judge me. But that's not to say God won't judge you and me one day by how we've lived. 
um, and served him. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 15, sorry, verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. It all goes back to love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Christ died for him. Christ loved him. The Father did not spare his son for that soul. Don't destroy him. How can you destroy a brother by judging them when Christ allowed himself to be destroyed in order that that brother might be spared the judgment of God? And will you subject that brother to the judgment of man? God forbid, Paul said. And some of you need to th- think long and hard about that. Because it's so easy in a church that takes the law seriously as we do, we become a little bit judgy. So assurance of God's love is the foundation of true Christian witness, true Christian liberty. Moving on, thirdly, assurance of God's love is the foundation of true Christian boldness. Verse 46, I will also speak of your testimony before kings and shall not be put to shame. Like Robert the Bruce, when he was preaching in the King's Chapel in Scotland, James the Sixth, um, who was the King James of the King James Bible, but he was no friend to the Presbyterians, and he was banishing men left, right, and centre to like Inverness, which is like beyond the pale, and a very cold and rugged place in those days. And he was banishing ministers for crossing him. And he's, he's I've said this before. The story is well known, but it's wonderful. And Robert Bruce is preaching. And he sees the king talking to his lords and ladies and waiting around him during the middle of the sermon, and he pauses several times, and the king doesn't get the message. And so he stops the sermon and says, when the lion roars, the beasts of the field tremble. When King Jesus speaks, the petty princes of this earth will be silent before him. And everybody looked at the king and the king shut his mouth, put his head down, and Robert the Bruce, Robert Bruce, not Robert the Bruce, different people, Robert Bruce kept preaching. And so, where do you get the boldness to be like that? It's a sure, let your love, your steadfast love, your stubborn commitment to love me and to save me come to me. Then I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. That's the, the sense of the Hebrew. They all connect back to that verse 41. Boldness. You want to be a bold witness at work, to know when to speak, when to remain silent, which are very important. It's not always wise to speak, 
and not always brave to remain silent and, 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 and have that courage and that wisdom is found with an, an assured sense of the love of God. If you're not sure of God's love, you'll always be insecure before men. And then fourthly and lastly, assurance of God's love is the foundation of true Christian joy. Verse 47 and 48, let, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Verse 47, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Lifting up the hands is the, is the focus, the, the attitude of focus and hope and worship. And as he's worshiping, notice he's, this is not a proof text for the regulative principle of worship that you only do what God commands, right? But as he's worshiping, he's lifting up his hands to God's statutes. He can't worship God without also thinking about God's rules and God's laws and God's commandments, his statutes, God's laws written in stone. But these are the musings of a happy soul. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. And so it's no surprise what captures his heart, fills his mouth. I will meditate on your statutes. I will ruminate on them and think about them and talk about them one to another. And it's a joyful soul. And that joy comes rooted back in the experience of God's love. Here's a guy, he's not on the religious rat wheel trying to earn God's love. As if the faster he runs on that wheel, it's attached to a little bulb that gets brighter and brighter and brighter, and the bulb is God's love for him. The faster he runs, the more God loves him. That's not not the insecurity driving this man. Here's a man whose joy is rooted in the fact that he has God's love, even though at the moment he's not quite feeling it and needs it to come to him. Yet, because God has promised it, he does not doubt it. He has a reason to hope that is deeper than his feelings. That God's love is promised. It's steadfast. It's sure. And it will not let him down. Assurance of God's love is the foundation of true Christian witness, true Christian liberty, true Christian boldness, and true Christian joy. Are you happy, Christian? Are you joyful? So that question goes back, it haunts me. Jack Miller's famous question, where's your joy? One of the things on the top of my prayer list every morning, where's your joy this morning, Neil? What thoughts, what fears, what anxieties, what insecurities are clawing at your joy? And the way back to joy is always the path to the Father's heart. Come to me, God says. If you doubt my love, let me walk. Let's walk together to the cross and see the one I did not spare. I did not spare the object, the son of my love, but made him an object of my wrath 
so that I might take you, the object of my wrath, and make you a son of my love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you this evening for your word, for your law, for your mercies, and pray, Father, that you would take these meditations and make them effective in the life of your people. Deliver us, O God, from a burdened legalism that's insecure of the Father's love. Give us a sense of your love for us, O God, and enlarge our heart with it that we might run in the way of your commandments. The nitty-gritty details matter, but we keep them not to earn the love, but because we already have it and shall for all eternity. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.